A young man in his early 20s is trying to dig himself out of a very deep hole. He has squandered a college scholarship and disappointed his family and his friends and himself. He is deeply ashamed. He went off and got lost in a far country, disengaged from all the best of his past and decided instead to engage in some new things. Dissolute living is what the famous parable of the prodigal son calls it. But he is, he's trying to turn back now for home. He knows that he has to return, but he doesn't know exactly how. So days turn into weeks, months. He rents a room in a rooming house. It's in a city that's not his home, but it's not far. It's closer. He gets a low-paying but respectable enough job in a friend's business venture, and he works for him by day and works on finally finishing his college degree in the evenings. And he's begun to pray again. It's been a long hiatus from prayer. No longer the prayers of his childhood or teenage years. Actually, these are simpler, more desperate prayers. God, are you even there? Are you real? Do you know me? Begins to ask these questions with a kind of relentless urgency, even as he doesn't tell another soul in the world what's going on with him. But he's watching, he's listening, he's reading, and more praying. But why would he expect any answers? This is, this is stupid. This is a waste of time. This happens in the span of three days, three separate strangers, one walking down the sidewalk, one in a parking lot, and one behind the counter in a convenience store. Three separate strangers, each calls him by name. Just the first name. Wait, what? Did that just happen? Did I really hear that? And he begins to wonder if he's more messed up than he even thought he was. Or is he? There's this thick, massive book that a lot of clergy have in their libraries, but they've never read it. So what we do is we refer to it like I'm about to do. <laughs> and occasionally we look up something of interest in the index. And this book was written about 13 years ago by a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor, and it's called A Secular Age. And when critics use the word magisterial to describe your book, I suppose it is important. A lot of people who are thinking about today's secular society and how we got here refer to Taylor. I have read the first chapter, and Taylor asks at the very beginning of the book to imagine, if you can, what life must have been like 500 years ago, say in Europe. What were the presuppositions that everybody lived under that were kind of unquestioned? Number one, the world was created by God, and creation itself testified to that. Number two, that same God was very active in the affairs of the world, acting among peoples and nations and rulers. And number three, ours was 
an enchanted world, teeming with spiritual realities all the time. The Holy Spirit, demons, angels. Fast forward to today. By contrast, Taylor argues, to live in a secular age is not to disbelieve all those things as much as it is never even to consider them. By that he means in everyday life. Very few people think of God in a business meeting. Very few people think of transcendence, purchasing a car, buying the groceries. We don't actually suffer some God-shaped hole at the center of our lives demanding answers to ultimate meaning. In fact, we find meaning in our lives today in all kinds of places that don't have anything to do with transcendence. So a secular age is an age that does not ask God-related questions. It has lost the entire frame of reference. This is what Charles Taylor's book is all about, Our Day and Age, a secular age. So to swim in those kinds of cultural waters all the time, except for those moments when you as a Christian remember to pray or to say grace or to come to church, all of that presents a challenge to us when we, when we are asked to step out of the water today and hear a story like we just heard from the gospel according to Matthew. Today we hear the story of the transfiguration. It's one of the strangest stories in the New Testament. Jesus calls together his inner circle among the disciples, Peter and James and John, and these four take a good-sized hike up a good-sized mountain in Galilee to pray, and suddenly Jesus is transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become dazzling white. And then Jesus is accompanied by the appearance of Moses and Elijah. As someone once said, Peter sees a real estate opportunity. Hey, Jesus, this is a great location. Let's build some houses up here. But no, a bright cloud envelops the scene and the voice of God speaks. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Then the moment passes, and there is only Jesus with his disciples and they come down the mountain. This is a powerful, mystical experience that is shared in the gospel. It's an unveiling of sorts. First of all, Jesus is unveiled here to be the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, hence the presence of Moses and Elijah. And at the same time, Jesus is revealed as this singular person, in the history of humankind. God's divinity radiates through this particular one as no one before. So in Jesus, in this story, the disciples momentarily see the divide between heaven and earth, between God and humanity collapsed. Jesus is the kingdom of God fastened to earth nailed to this world. And 
As we prepare to journey this coming week into Lent, we will see how this is finally accomplished with literal nails. But inhabiting a world like this, a secular age, we may have a hard time engaging with the story literally. So what we do is we talk about the figurative language. There's light, there's clothing, there's a mountaintop. So let's do that. There is this dreamy, otherworldly quality to the story. And perhaps the disciples ask themselves after it's over, did that really happen or is that just a dream? Was that just our imagination? There is this cloud, as you heard, again, that descends upon the whole scene right in the middle of the story, and clouds rarely appear, if ever, in the Bible to describe the weather. Rather, clouds are an image, an image. They often appear in the Bible to represent God's presence and hiddenness at the same time. God's nearness and awesomeness at the same time. So we think of Moses going up Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus where God gives him the law in a thick cloud of thunder and lightning. We might think of in the New Testament, one of the most familiar images of Jesus coming again, the second coming, is his arrival on a cloud. Clouds as biblical typology, an image for encounter with this mysterious transcendent God. But we also use clouds as an image for fuzziness, fogginess, forgetfulness, inattentiveness, dreaminess, disconnected from reality. Get your head out of the clouds, we say. Back to the real world, a world devoid of God. Don't tell that story of strangers calling you by name, Lee, you will look weird to those decent and proper people at St. George's Church. Just over a week ago, we hosted that conference that you heard about, the future of Christianity in the West. It was outstanding, by the way. Um, one of the panelists that was invited to come and speak is a new friend, um, this great young guy, he's a PhD in theology, who teaches at Franklin Road Academy. And I asked him in the panel discussions, when he thinks about the future of the church, you know, he's looking at it, the high school students that he's teaching today. What does he see? Is he hopeful for the future of the church? His answer surprised me. Yes, he is. Because he talked about their hunger for transcendence. And these kids, this great desire to experience life in an enchanted world. When all of us adults live in a disenchanted world. It's like, excuse me, would you follow up on that? And he spoke of the television shows that they love to watch. How much they love shows that involve the supernatural. Stranger Things, the OA. His Dark Materials, The Outsider. Most of you, like me, don't have any idea what these shows are about. But I did check this against my own kids. This, this is correct. They love these shows. They're watching them all the time. 
So my friend, the panelist, went on. These kids believe in the supernatural. They yearn for it. They know that there is more to reality than our secular age assumes. Our world has not yet beat it out of them. And so, I think, yes, we actually do inhabit a world where people long to fill their God-shaped hole, who intuit that there is much, much more going on than meets the eye or fits the criteria of a kind of scientific rationalism that we've grown accustomed to in the West for hundreds of years. So what is it that I want to communicate today in making these points? First, I hope the gospel. To see Jesus transfigured as the connecting point between a world like ours that has forgotten its true frame of reference. To see Jesus as the bridge between a God who saves and the world we inhabit that can never save is to see good news. This prefigures all that is to come in the gospel story. But number two, for you, by faith and worship and life in the community of the church, to enlarge your frame of reference and live expectantly for signs of the supernatural. That's correct. The supernatural miracles healing, power to live life differently, holy lives, for discernment, for wisdom, for forgiveness, and the experience of joy that only God can give. A life that is well-lived is one that is open to the possibility of our lives becoming transparent to something much more extraordinary than we usually experience. And just because we cannot possibly in this life see everything there is to see does not mean that we cannot see much. We can, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. I know modern people can become discouraged with what we cannot know with absolute certainty. But this is not so with people of faith. I believe we are inhabiting a world that is bristling with transcendence. And every now and then, even in this what seems to be disenchanted world that is largely forgotten even to ask the God questions, we may discover in the most mundane moments, the most prosaic activities, the most ordinary interactions, a voice from heaven saying your name. You are my beloved. A ray of bright light piercing the cloud of unknowing with something that actually can be known. The incandescent aliveness of a God who is both near and mysterious, who both knows and loves us as he is in this beloved son, Jesus. Just behind the clouds, perhaps even now, about to pierce the darkness 
with his light.